Fantastic. Well, you can be seated if you aren't already. scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, for all of his life. He read 
the story of Jonah and had you know, digested the story of Jonah. And then at some point in his life, and we can guess perhaps how this came about in his thinking, but at some point in his life, he saw the story of Jonah as more than Jonah's story. He saw in Jonah's story like a pattern that not just happened in Jonah's life, but a pattern that happened. And so Jesus could take the, the story of Jonah from the same Bible that you have and, and could morph the story of Jonah into a pattern, a template, a thing that happens. And so he can call it the sign of Jonah. And again, we can see immediately where, where that might have come from in Jesus' reflection. I mean, at the time, Luke, Luke records that saying from Jesus, but um, you can clearly see how the pattern of Jonah fits what was going on in Jesus' life. He was being thrown overboard by his friends, by his countrymen. He was being sold out, um, betrayed by both those close to him and those who were not close to him, the religious establishment, etc. All of whom were his countrymen. Uh, he's been thrown overboard by them. And, um, you know, we can stretch a little bit and, and see that, at least from a human perspective, um, Jesus could see that, that these, these forces were, were all around him. It was maybe perhaps even a sense of helplessness, certainly like Jonah would have had. Um, and so we can see immediately how Jesus for himself might convert the story of Jonah into the sign of Jonah. But the question is, the further question is, is it possible that when Jesus said that, the only sign I'm going to give is the sign of Jonah, is it possible that when Jesus said that, he actually meant more than just his own life? In other words, yes, Jonah's story becomes a pattern, a template, a sign, and it fits my life, Jesus' life. But is it possible that when Jesus said that, he's talking about more than just his own life? Maybe is it possible that Jesus is actually talking about our lives? When he says the only sign I'm going to give is the sign of Jonah. Yeah, I'm going to, with my own life, I'm about to perform or conform to the pattern of Jonah. But what if when Jesus said he gives the sign of Jonah, what if he really meant he gives the sign of Jonah? That this pattern of down into the depths, down into helplessness, darkness, etc., and then resurrection on the other end, what if Jesus is saying, this is actually a pattern of life that I give and give and give and give. Now, I realize that's not a very, that's not a sizzling thought. That's not a like, woohoo! <laughs> that's not what we, we don't, we don't want that pattern in our lives. What we want in our lives is up and to the right, right? Like, a, like we want our lives to be like shh, an arrow shot out of a bow and there is no entropy, there's no force of gravity. We want our lives just to go up and to the right. In fact, that's the reason some people do God. <laughs> they think, I'm going to do God and get a little more up and to the right, you know, a little more juice in my <laughs> up and to the right agenda, you know. The rabbit's foot in my pocket didn't work too well, so I'm going to do some God and see if I can get it going. Um, but, so that's not what we want to hear. And yet, my suggestion is, when you slow down and reflect and think about your own life, the lives of others that you know and love. Isn't it really true that we see this pattern again and again? A season of life where I'm, I feel like I'm being thrown overboard by 
friends, by life, by circumstance, whatever forces, you know, I'm being thrown overboard, I'm plunging down into helplessness, darkness, uncertainty, I don't know where this is going, I don't know how this is going to end, etc. And then, eventually, over time, whatever, there's a, and I know it sounds like a dramatic word, but there's a, a resurrection of sorts, a new birth, a new, a new birth, a new season, a new expression of life. It's it's a pattern. And in fact, as I said last week, when you read this Jonah saying of Jesus in that light, what you find ultimately is that what Jesus is saying in that instance with this whole sign of Jonah thing is very similar to what he says in other places where he's, you know, where he says, talking to his followers. Take up your cross and follow me. What's that? That's death. When Jesus says, unless a, 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 a seed falls into the ground and dies, and only then can it produce lots and lots of seeds. What's that? That's death and resurrection. It's the same pattern. Again, also in the writings of the Apostle Paul, we see this. Paul, Paul thought that's what the Christian life is. It's dying with Christ so that we can be raised with him. Paul said, I die daily. So when you look at it that way, you see this pattern everywhere in Scripture. Um, and even in our own lives when we reflect. So, that um, image has become very meaningful to me in reflecting on, well, again, the initial part of it was, for me, was reflecting on where we've been and where we are as a church. Um, it's not a stretch to apply that pattern to our church to say, you know, we were thrown overboard by our friends, Eved into a season of helplessness, darkness, nothing we can do about it, uncertainty, where is this going? I mean, I've felt all those things. And, of course, I'm saying all this to say, as you know, the sign of Jonah doesn't end with the descent. It, the sign has a second half. And the second half, in Jonah's case, was spit out on the correct beach. In Jesus' case, it's Easter, it's resurrection. Um, in the micro instances of this in our own lives, you could fill in the blanks for what, what that upswing was. A new relationship, a new lease on life, a new career path, or whatever it might have been, that, that, that new beginning um, for you. And I'm saying all this now to say that what I feel, what I believe, is that that second half of the sign is now upon us as a church. Um, I don't know all of the answers for, um, for the next season of ministry together. Um, but I know that that season is upon us, and that's part of the conversation that I'm glad we've begun with um, several of you. I'm grateful for your thoughts and prayer and feedback and conversation. Um, and I'm looking forward to that conversation um, continuing. So, so that's, that's the Jesus take on this um, phenomenon. Also, in the midst of my thinking and reflecting and um, in conversation over the last several months, um, I rediscovered a great book that um, had been on my shelf, I think since 2010, give or take. Um, it's written by Dr. Henry Cloud, and the title of the book is Necessary Endings. Um, Henry Cloud is the he's kind of the, the godfather of all the boundaries material. If you read the boundary books, he's got a great book on integrity. Um, 
he's a, a brilliant, his, his uh, background is psychology, but um, great teacher um, and more. So um, I began to just really feast on that book again as it kind of reemerged into my life. And so what I'm planning to do over the next several weeks is work through that book together with you guys, um, again, for that dual purpose. Um, what we're experiencing as a church is really a series of what I want to say are necessary endings. And we'll talk about how that applies with what Dr. Cloud has to present. But also, I believe that along the way, there will be some gifts to each of us um, that are beyond our common experience as a church family and are applicable in our personal lives, in our family, or maybe in the workplace or whatever. So, uh, Necessary Endings by Dr. Henry Cloud. And the subtitle of the book really says it all. Here's the subtitle. The employees, businesses, and relationships that we all have to give up in order to move forward. That's the subtitle um, of the book. So it's about endings and moving forward. So there's that's that's Dr. Cloud's, um, he's using the language of psychology to say essentially what Jesus is saying with, um, with the sign of Jonah. Uh, here's a great quote to kind of get us going uh, this morning. Uh, great is the art of the beginning, but greater is the art of ending. That's from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Um, so the beginning point is to recognize that actually endings are universal in our lives. They're everywhere. They're constant. Um, they are unavoidable. And I think we could even say, like, positively, we could say it, you know, something like this. If we're ever going to get to a new place, if we're ever going to get to a new tomorrow, any kind of um, growth step, etc., well, that necessarily implies that some things are going to have to end. You know, I mean, so it's, that's how common and essential endings are. Anytime there's going to be something new, the old has to end, or at least something about the old has to end. I mean, it just kind of comes, you know, with the territory. Uh, here's, here's how Jesus said this, Mark chapter 2. He said, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. And of course, over the centuries, there's been lots of really rich reflection on this beautiful metaphor of Jesus. But the point is, when there's, when there's something new happening, there's got to be a new container. You know, so the old has to be done away with. Or you can think about um, human development, right? Um, a, a baby is born in order for an infant to reach toddlerhood. Well, infanthood has to go away and be left, think about it, left behind forever. Mm. When I say that as a father of six, <laughs> it's almost like, oh, that's hard to say. The cute little <laughs> infant with the fuzzy face and you poke them in the end and they smile and you go, oh, <laughs> but in order for in order for that infant to become a toddler all of that infantness 
has to come to an end and be left behind forever. That's really poignant, isn't it? And then, of course, we could go, I don't know how many stages of development you want to break this down to, but this is true all throughout the stages of development. In order, in order for a child to become an adult, childhood has to be left behind forever and ever and ever. Boy, that's hard to hear as a parent, isn't it? Uh, but maybe, maybe we should talk with each other about this all the time. I mean, I don't know if you guys have but this whole failure to launch phenomenon in our culture, I mean, it's epidemic. Um, and so, uh, anyway, so, so, so that's, you know, it, it comes, we understand that endings are natural, necessary, and everywhere all around us, in fact, stated negatively, if we, if we had no endings in our lives, we would all stay stuck in the same spot, conceivably, forever, perpetually. I mean, you know, <laughs> Dr. Cloud says, endings are the reason you're not married to your prom date. <laughs> <laughs> endings are the reason that most of us don't still work at our first job, right? Endings are the reason, I mean, you know what I mean? It's like, they're, they're everywhere. Um, we would be stuck if there were no such thing as endings. And again, the point of all this, just like Jesus, when Jesus invokes the sign of Jonah, it's really, for me, it's the same ultimate impact, I think, internally, which is to embrace endings. It's, an ending doesn't mean that something is wrong. An ending is not something to be resisted. I think sometimes our natural inclination is that endings evoke a feeling of failure. Something must be wrong. Something must be wrong with me. Something must be wrong with you know, whatever, whatever it might be. And so we resist endings. We hide from endings. We uh, persist in relationships um, and patterns that we know should end. But we resist putting an end to them because of that feeling of shame or whatever, whatever it might be. I was thinking about this and uh, just the the, the uh, ubiquity of endings, they're everywhere, um, this sort of compressed mission statement from God to the prophet Jeremiah came to mind. Jeremiah chapter 1, this is God speaking to Jeremiah. He says, see, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to uproot and break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Notice the theme of endings buried within that mission statement. I mean, there's endings everywhere in the mission that God gave to the prophet Jeremiah. You're going to have to uproot some stuff. You're going to have to tear down some stuff. You're going to have to destroy some stuff. You're going to have to overthrow. It's as if, it's as if God is saying to Jeremiah, it's like, look, Jerry, <laughs> I've, got, I've got some really good things for my people and in order for my people to get there to that new future, that new day that new tomorrow, that new place some things are going to have to end some things are going to have to be uprooted torn down, overthrown, destroyed all those endings have to occur in order for my people to reach a new place that's just stunning I think and again, so you know, that's all kind of broad and, and 
general and, and abstract. But again, making application along, all along the way. You know, this is true um, for organizations, for any organization to move to a new place, a new tomorrow. There are lots of programs and patterns and maybe even some people um, that are going to have to end, going to have to go away in order to get to tomorrow, to get to what's next. Some, some ideas that were previously great ideas that we collectively pursued with heart and soul and strength and money, etc. Those ideas are going to have to be left behind, and that's really hard, especially as a leader of an organization. When, when you're the one who put together all those mm. expressions of that organization, mm. to come to a point and say, wow, okay, it's, it's crystal clear. In order, in order for this organization, whether it's a church or any other, to get to that future expression of itself, some of these great ideas are going to have to die and go away. I mean, that's that's stunning. And again, there is application here for our individual lives as well. And ultimately, my hope is that the Spirit Himself within each of us um, makes the creative application, but you know, just kind of skimming around categories, you know, you can think about. Um, in order for me personally to move into that, that next stage, that next season of growth, it's likely that there are some relationships that are going to have to end. Some relationships that we already know are toxic in our lives, and in order for us to, to grow, move forward, those relationships are going to have to end. Some destructive patterns and practices in my life that are going to have to die and come to an end. Some sort of phase or stage of life that's going to have to end in order for me to move to the next stage. Um, you know, I, I know this from my own life and observation of others, but, you know, sometimes a breakup, you know, feels like the end of the world in the moment. But then later we're able to look back and see that that breakup was actually the beginning of a whole new life for myself or for folks that I love, my children. <laughs> yeah. um, so all that to say, endings are a natural part of life. They're absolutely necessary if we're going to avoid being stuck. If we're going to avoid just continuing to be a rerun of our own past self, right? If we're going to avoid that, then endings are absolutely necessary. Um, so that's that's kind of observation number one. Now, today where I'd like for us to spend really the, the core of our time um, is to talk about three types, three different types of endings. Um, my grandmother was a highly skilled gardener. I mean, my grandmother could grow anything. She grew strawberries, corn, tomatoes. I mean, it's almost like when you went to my grandmother's house, everything you ate came from their, you know, from their yard <laughs> um, in one, some way, shape, or form. But perhaps my grandmother's most impressive skill in terms of gardening um, was her expertise in growing roses. My grandmother held a PhD in biology, and she had served a career teaching biology at the university level. Um, 
I only knew her and my grandfather both in, in retirement, but that's how she had spent her career. So my grandmother not only grew beautiful rose bushes, my grandmother actually invented new varieties of roses. Like she would take two different colors of roses and graft them together to make a new color of roses. I mean, it's like she was like just playing with the things, you know. <laughs> Some of us can't make one in grow at all. And for her, it was like a sport, you know. She would just say, oh, look at that. You know, um, so when I was young, um, my grandparents lived just a couple blocks over from where I grew up, and I was responsible for mowing, mowing their yard. And so I was there about once a week at their place, you know, mowing the grass. Um, and in my memory, at least, it seems like every day I was there, my grandmother was on her front porch. It was all kind of screened in, kind of a greenhouse of sorts. She could make it a greenhouse in the winter. Um, she'd be on the front porch just dealing with the roses. I mean, they were just all over her front porch. And she would just move from plant to plant, looking up and down, looking at the plants. I'm circling with the mower, you know. But she's looking, and every now and then, she would reach out her hand and take a portion of a plant, look at it really closely, and then she'd move in with her other hand with some kind of tool in there. And what's going to happen? Snip. And then she'd move to the next plant and look and look and she'd reach and grab and snip, snip. I didn't know what she was doing at the time, but you know what she was doing. We have a word for it. What's it called? Pruning. pruning. Yeah. Yeah. She's pruning those buds and branches. Um, and I said all that to say in this book, Dr. Cloud actually um, points out three different categories of pruning which serve metaphorically as three different kinds of endings in our lives. And in summary, he talks about three different categories of pruning. The first would be healthy buds that are not the best buds are candidate for pruning. Secondly, sick buds or branches that are not going to recover. And then thirdly, dead buds and branches that are just taking up space. Um, somehow impeding the healthy buds and branches from growing. So let's look, let's look closely at, at all three of these categories. So necessary ending type one. Um, rose bushes, like any other plant, um, they produce more buds and branches than the stalk can actually support and bring to full flourishing. <clears throat> the, the, the plant itself has enough resources to feed and nurture only so many buds to their full potential. It can't bring all of the blooms that it produces to full potential. So a good gardener knows that in order for the bush to thrive, a certain number of the blooms have to go. So the gardener is examining, looking for the very best blooms, the ones that are worthy of the plant's limited resources of nutrients and support, etc. And she cuts the rest away. By pruning away these, you know, not quite best buds, the gardener is actually freeing the plant to deliver its scarce resources to the buds and branches that really do fit the gardener's vision for what a full, mature, thriving rose bush is. So without these necessary endings, these prunings, you really, you'd never get to that beautiful rose bush that the gardener imagines in her mind, right? 
So this is necessary ending type one. We could call it good but not best. These are candidates for pruning. And then there's necessary ending type two. Sometimes there are buds and branches that are sick or diseased. Um, and they're never, ever going to get well. For a while, the gardener might watch them, water them, fertilize them, feed them, sing to them, pray for them. <laughs> but eventually, a good gardener realizes that bud, that branch, it's sick and it's never going to get well. And so, snip, right? Um, so it's never going to recover. And the gardener realizes this branch is never going to conform to the final end result that I have in mind for my rose bush. So it's got to go. This is necessary ending type two. Diseased, never going to recover, and so pruning. And again, as a result, the plant now has even more of its limited resources to deliver to the best buds and branches. And then we can talk about necessary ending type three. Um, these are buds and branches that are just dead and they're just taking up space. You know, the healthy branches that need the space to grow and to spread out, to thrive, they can't do so because this dead branch is in the way. So the healthy branch has got to bend and contort and move itself, you know, to try to get to the um, light and air that it needs. But that dead branch is just in the way. And so the good gardener, in order to make room for the healthy buds and branches to spread out and thrive and get the light and air that they need, the good gardener takes that tool and snips away those dead branches. That's necessary ending type three, dead and taking up space. Now you can see, just from that quick run through, you can see that in both organizations and in our personal lives, all three of these types of endings are necessary. If, a, if an initiative is sucking up resources that could be redirected to an area or, or a process that holds more promise, then that initiative is a candidate for pruning. If an endeavor is sick and never going to recover for whatever reason, um, then it's pruned. If it's clear that some, some process or some perhaps even some relationship in my life is dead and just taking up space, it's a candidate for pruning. Um, this threefold formula, the point of all that, is this holds true for how we think about pruning in all areas of our lives. But again, the simple truth is, in order for us individually, collectively, to move from where we are now to that new, better place, we have to prune. There's no other way around it. Some things have to come to an end. And as clear as that is, and that's clear to me, um, but we, and I mean we, I'll just say for me, we still, generally speaking, we still persist in avoiding endings in various ways. Resist endings not going to have that conversation. I'm not going to make that hard decision. I'm not, you know, whatever. And again, whether and whether there's a whole there's a whole section we'll do on why it is that we resist these endings. But we, the fact is um, that we do. 
endings always involve uncertainty, fear, I don't know, nervousness, whatever, you know, they always involve that. And yet, it still remains uh, absolutely true that if we're going to move forward, again, whether it's organizationally or personally, some things have to end. They just have to. Um, it's not the case that every aspect of my life right now can come with me to the tomorrow that God has for me. Right? That's just, that's just, that's just true. So right now, what I want to do, and I'll just ask you to answer these questions internally for now. Maybe we can have some discussion in just a few minutes. But I want to ask you two questions, really, on the, both on the intellectual level and on the emotional level, perhaps more importantly. So the intellectual question is, um, what is your intellectual response to this? And again, I mean, I've kind of laid this out in a, in a you know, in a kind of a right-brained, or that, I don't even know, kind of laid it out in an intellectual way, right? So, so what is your intellectual reaction to this? Do, do you affirm this idea? Or is there some pushback in you where you say, well, for this reason, this reason, this reason, you know, we might, we might challenge, you know, that thinking um, at some point. And that's fair to, to have that take. But the real question I want to ask you to think about is, what is your emotional response to this idea? Um, especially when, when you start to, like, reflect on this and start to make application in your life, in those instances where there are people and relationships involved, does it feel mean? Does it feel callous? Does it feel difficult to do? I mean, yeah, it does. Um, does it make you nervous to think about having that conversation? That represents putting it in. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a, it's an employee relationship, or um, maybe it's a, a pattern with, with your children. Um, some things just have to end. But man, I don't want to have that conversation because you know whatever. Um, give you butterflies a little bit. <laughs> or, in all fairness, is it energizing? Is it energizing for you to think about, oh, yeah. I mean, I don't, you mean I don't have to just tolerate this toxic relationship forever? You mean, you mean I went to church on Sunday and I got permission to cut that relationship out of my life? <laughs> Is there something energizing about that, right? It's, I think it's fair for it to be both, all the above, really. You know, but I'm just pointing that out just to say that's there too, I think. Certainly, certainly it is for me. And I think the reason those two questions are important at this particular point is because, you know, again, jumping back to the Jesus language, if we're going to embrace the sign of Jonah, this is the territory that we're in. We're in the territory of embracing endings. I mean, it's just, there's just no way to avoid it. Um, Endings are natural, normal, necessary, and essential if we're going to move forward. And so I think that's why it's important to kind of reflect on that, on whatever those resistances are within me. It's important, at least at this point, even if we can't solve them, but it's important to recognize those, those 
resistance strategies that I've developed over time in my life. Um, recognize those and with a view to eventually I'm going to overcome that point of resistance so that I can embrace the new that God has for me. You know. Um, okay, so one other one other point of reflection for this morning. Um, there is a, I think, an obvious implication of all this. When you think about endings and using this metaphor of pruning and a rose bush and all that, which totally works um, for me. But that's all very metaphorical. It's kind of a you know word picture. But when we begin pruning in real life, we have to have the equivalent of the gardener's expectation for a full, mature, thriving rosebush, right? The entire word picture that we just painted depended on what we all know without me even spelling it out necessarily, but my grandmother or any other skilled gardener, they have a picture in their mind of what their desired end result for a rosebush looks like. And so we can say it in a way that sounds kind of awkward, but I think it'll make sense. But the gardener is pruning toward something, right? He is, she or he is, is pruning toward their previously held expectation, goal, target, desired end in mind. Um, even if it doesn't exist yet in this particular rose bush, the gardener has that picture in mind and can prune toward that. So when, we, when it comes from, for us, for moving from this metaphorical language into real life pruning, it becomes essential for us to have something equivalent to that. Whether we're talking about an organization, if we're pruning an organization, what is the desired end in mind for this organization, whether it's a business, etc. When it comes to our personal lives, what is the desired end in mind? What is that next thing that it seems like God is calling me to, even if I can't see it now, even if it doesn't exist now, do I have that vision in mind so I can prune toward that, right? Prune my personal life toward that. And then, of course, for us as a church, what is that future us that it seems like God has in mind for us so that we can prune um, toward that? So, um, so this is a, a critical step, and this is where I just, only thing I can say in, in all... Uh, sincerity um, for us as a church I haven't seen yet what what it is that God is calling us to be in the future I think I see parts of it but but not not its entirety and this is where I think the spiritual resources are available to us and, and those resources I mean community conversation prayer reflection um sensitivity to the voice of the Spirit, etc. That's what I'm expecting to occur um, over the next few weeks for us, or months, whatever, I don't know. But um, so, so that, I think, is a critical part of, if we're going to make this metaphor work, <laughs> you know, uh, in... Sorry, in, did you say that again? <laughs> <laughs> no, never going to say it again. I don't even know what I just said. I'm going to say it again. No idea. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, so yeah, so that so so, and, and I think that allows me to circle back and and rephrase what I said before when I described 
necessary ending type one as good but not best. That's just a convenient way to say it until I can give this longer explanation. And now that I've given this longer explanation, I would, I would restate necessary ending type one as saying something like good but not the end in mind, <laughs> which would have been awkward if I'd said it 20 minutes ago. But now that we've had this little explainer, you know, we can say necessary. So, you know, what I'm saying is like, if you say good, not best, well, that makes it sound, I don't know, that's just kind of off-putting to me. But, but when I say there are, there are aspects of our church that have been good, but they no longer fit with the now end in mind, that works for me, you know, to think of it, to think of it like that. Um, so, or maybe we can say good, but not the target, <laughs> you know. Um, but that's just to make quickly jump to the, the, the church application of it. Um, we, could, we could make the same application personally. If there are aspects of my life that are, you know, while good, but don't really fit with where it is that I see God is calling me or my family, my, you know, my marriage uh, to go in, in the future. It's not to say that these are bad things. They just don't fit. And so they become candidates for, for pruning. And the same thing in business. Are there programs, processes, people, etc., that are perfectly good, but just don't fit with where we're going? Well, then even though they are good things, maybe even good people, good processes, good programs, in some cases programs that we loved last year, spent lots of time and energy and money on it. But now what we see is it doesn't fit with where we're going in the future. Well, it's a good thing, but it's a candidate for pruning nevertheless. Is that making sense? Um, so all of that brings us to us as a church. And now I want to just say um, two things in the category of the desired end in mind. And as I said, um, I don't see the whole thing I was talking with Saul, um, and so, and I'll say to you guys um, as a group, I have never seen what I think it is that God is calling us to be going forward as a church. And I say that as somebody who has been in church all my life, um, both growing up and then as a as a pro, you know, church pro for thirty years. Um, I don't want to repeat anything that I've ever seen before. Um, I think that what God is calling us to do is going to be something that at least I haven't ever seen. It Maybe you have, and that's why I keep saying this is going to come from as a result of conversation. Um, but I can say that and then turn around and say, but there are elements that have and are becoming inspirational to me and very appealing moving forward. And I want to talk about two of them as we wrap up this morning. And the first is the image of the open table. Um, I have found inspiration in this idea of the church as an open table, where really and truly everyone is welcome at the table, um, no matter who you are. And there are no second-class seats at the table. Um, every seat at the table is a first-class seat where the church is an open table of inclusion and diversity of people across all 
legislate across all divisions, culturally speaking. You know, um, we have economic divisions in our culture. We have racial divisions in our culture. We have divisions with regard to sexuality in our culture. We have divisions on, on just across the board. Um, whereas the undeniable practice of Jesus was, well, specifically with regard to his table fellowship, um, he welcomed everyone to the table, so much so that the religious community um, actually disqualified him for it. They saw, they saw his practice as disqualified. You can't be a legitimate God follower the way you, the way you behave. And so I can say from that that until today's church practices inclusivity to the point where the religious community uh, uh, is upset by it, then the church hasn't done inclusivity the Jesus way. Mm. Um, because the religious community in our culture, in many ways, is just as religious as the Pharisees' culture in Jesus' day. So, so, so that's one. That that's an image that is, um, I don't know what you call it, appealing to me, inspirational to me. Um, and then the second thing I want to talk about, and I know that that many of you 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 might expect me to say something like this uh, in a in a context like this, but um, I am inspired by the thought of seeing a faith community as a collective of people who are sold out to the recognition that my God image shapes me, my God image forms who I am, and therefore I'm ready, willing, and being enabled to take advantage of that recognition to be reformed from the inside out through uh, a renewed, reset image of who God is and what God's like. So that I'm, I'm inspired by the idea of the church becoming, at least in part, like a God image workshop <laughs> with spiritual formation in mind. Um, and the reason I said you might expect me to say that, because I know I've talked about that a lot over the last few years. But, um, I'm, man, I'm ready to double down on it. Because I can tell you that in my own life, these reflections on, um, on a renewed God image for myself have transformed me and are transforming me. Um, this conversation has transformed my marriage. It has transformed the way I parent my kids uh, in, 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 in the best way. I mean, not, not just change for change's sake, but change for the better. Um, and I have enjoyed the conversation, of course, with, with many of you as well. And so, and I, you know, and I say that knowing that what I just said, it's not like that has sizzled. You know, that's not, that's, not, that's not a selling point, you know. I get that. I realize that. Um, but that's okay with me because um, what I know is the, the spiritual formation impact of this pursuit, in my, again, in my own life, in my family, and with friends, um, many of you as well in this conversation. Um, so I'm, I'm ready to double down on it. You know, I mean, I, I don't know how many 
more years of ministry that I have, but I kind of look at this as, as halftime for me. And, and I'm, I'm willing to say that whatever the theme somebody else might say, I don't even know, but whatever the theme somebody else might say um, has been for the first half of my ministry, um, I'm willing to say that if I could pick the theme um, for the second half of ministry for me, it would be just that God image, that your God image shapes you. I don't care how much time you spend in prayer. I don't care how much you want to be a nice person, how many Bible verses you memorize. If your God image is toxic, you will never be transformed into the image of Christ. It won't happen. And the reverse is actually true. I don't care how many Bible verses you don't know. I don't care how much time you pray you don't spend. I don't care how many worship songs you don't sing. If your God image gets healed, you'll be healed. Because it's shaping who you are on the inside. 24 hours a day, 365 days a week, a year, a week. <laughs> um, so, so that's all I got. You know, those two, those two pieces, that's all I have so far. That's not the whole thing. I realize I get it 100%. That's the reason I lay it out to you, incomplete as it is. I need help on this, and I look forward to, um, to your help with it. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray.